Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter number 7. And uh, told me to say a little bit about myself, and that's about it. I'm from Minster. Actually, I'm from Louisville originally, and uh, uh, then moved to Minster, became the assistant pastor there about seven years ago at Calvary Chapel Baptist, and um, took over about two years ago. And um, appreciate your pastor and his friendship. We had him in uh, uh, several times now, but every year for our uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, we want to let all, all the similar, uh, similarly-minded Baptist churches here that believe in the same things that we do um, have them in, let them know we appreciate them, appreciate their ministry. And so our, our church is for you guys here in Sydney. We appreciate you. We're thankful for the privilege to be able to, to be here this morning, me and my wife. And I appreciate Brother Alter and uh, Brother Nathan. Always enjoy talking to him and everybody else here. I know several of you all very well and appreciate so much uh, the chance to be here. Ecclesiastes chapter number 7, verse number 1. Solomon writes this and he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Father, I pray that you'd help me as I preach today. I so much want to magnify you, and I pray that your word would speak to each and every heart, give you glory first and foremost, but then also you'd use your word in us for our good as we strip some things from us today. Uh, hopefully you reveal some things that, that, that are burning us alive, that we need to cry out, ask for help about, that we need to change. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that that would be their first thought as soon as we come to the invitation time, that I need to trust Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes um, last year. And, uh, man, that is a hard book to preach through. There's just so much in it. And then there's a lot of things. Honestly, when you read them, you're thinking, man, that's great. I have no idea what that means, but it's great. And uh, so it was difficult to study and, and, and all of that. But I want to tell you, I, I came away. First off, Ecclesiastes was already one of my favorite books in the Bible, but I came away with a, um, a newfound love and appreciation for what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes continually asks the hard questions. I tell our church all the time, we need to ask the hard questions, not the easy ones, okay, right? That's all we do in church many times. I'm not saying you, but I'm talking about a lot of churches. You know, well, we just ask ourselves the easy things. Do I look nice? Do I act nice? Did I pay my bills? Then Jesus must love me, Okay. We ask the easy questions, but it's only when we ask the hard questions that we're going to get the good answers, all right? And so Ecclesiastes is Solomon continually asking hard questions, talking about difficult things. And for the first six chapters, Solomon, the author, the, the king of Israel, um, the wisest, most famous, wealthiest man of his day, at least, if not all time, talks about the vanity, the emptiness, the disappointment that he's seen and he's brought on himself in life. But everything switches gears now in chapter 7. So for the first six chapters, it's Solomon continually saying, if I can paraphrase, life stinks, then you die. All right? 
And that's pretty much what the first six chapters is. I mean, it's, it's the downer, okay, of Scripture there. And then everything changes in the last six chapters. It's as if Solomon switches gears and says, but you don't have to live life and waste your life like I did. You can avoid my, my mistakes. You can submit to God and you can live better than I did. Now, now we would look at Solomon and we'd say, live better than him. I mean, look, he had a thousand women. I mean, that's ridiculous. He had a house that took 153,000 men 14 years to build. The temple, as elaborate as it, took, as it was, took seven. Solomon's house took 14 years. The parties, the food, the Bible describes in, in, in the second chapter, I believe it is of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes how much food, oh no, I think that's over in, over, over in Chronicles or something, but it describes the amount of food that Solomon had daily as his portion. Uh, scholars have added it up, said it, was, it comes out to feed about 20,000 people. Okay? He had untold riches. The Queen of Sheba, a lady that doesn't even like King Solomon, right? She, she's got her mind made up before she ever gets there. She shows up saying, it can't be true. It can't possibly be true, all the things everybody has told me about you, Solomon. Right? Solomon, by the time she leaves, he has impressed her, blown her mind so much that she is like the half hasn't even been told. Okay? I mean, Solomon, just everything he had was just epic. And he would blow your mind and you'd say, wow, that's living. But for six chapters, Solomon says, no, 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 I chased everything in life, trying to find the meaning of life. I chased women. I chased partying. I chased song. I chased building houses. I chased the fame of my own name. I chased riches. And to quote Muhammad Ali after he retired, I'm from Louisville, the Louisville lip, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, after he retired, said, I had the world and it wasn't nothing. And so now Solomon, after echoing that sentiment, I had everything and it ruined me. He switches gears and he says, don't live a vain, hypocritical life like I did. And I know that sounds hypocritical to us. Okay, he had a thousand women. He had a house that took 153,000 guys 14 years to build. Right? He had everything and he engaged in all sorts of wickedness. And now he's going to tell us not to live like he did. I remember one of my uncles coming over to my house when I was a kid. He was a good man. Um, uh, he, he meant well by what he said. But I remember us sitting there on our porch swing, and all of a sudden he pulls out a cigarette, and he looks at me, and I'm four years old, and he looks at me and he says, Brad, don't ever, ever do this. I wish I didn't smoke these. Then he put it right in his lips, flipped his lighter on, lit it, and then started puffing it. And I remember even at four, sitting there thinking, well, that's pretty fake <laughs> to tell me, don't you ever do this thing I'm about to do and really enjoy <laughs> because he did. He's like getting the shakes. And, he was, oh. and he looked at me like, don't ever do this. Now, I, I know some of you, particularly teens and young adults, if you're anything like the teens, young adults that I deal with, you see and you hear people do wrong or talk about past wrongs and then say, don't do what I did. And it turns you off. I get that, okay? But here's the thing. Our churches are filled with young people who are growing distant from God because they've seen hypocrisy. And they say, well, if that's what it's like, then I don't want anything to do with it. Look, if that's you, I apologize, first off, that you've seen hypocrites, but none of that excuses you from knowing the truth and doing what's right. Okay? Don't walk away from God and church because you say, well, I saw some hypocrites. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but congrats. Welcome to the club. We meet Tuesdays and we have T-shirts. All right? So get over it. Um, none of that makes the Bible less true 
or church less needed. In fact, it makes the Bible more true and it makes a submissive relationship to Christ, the head of the church, more needed. Right? It validates everything that the Bible says about man, that we are wicked, that we are sinful, and that we ruin every single thing that we touch. And the only good thing in this life that we can possibly know is Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, okay? working in us and through us. Okay? So it makes spiritual relationships, accountability, rebuke, all those things that happen in church, it makes them more needed, not less needed, because you saw some hypocrites. And so when Solomon says, don't do as I did, don't roll your eyes. Take it in the spirit that it's intended. This is a man full of heartache and regret, an old man at the end of his life saying, please listen, I lived life my way and it only emptied and ruined me in the end. You don't have to chase what I did for you to be able to figure it out. Listen, the smart person, the wise person doesn't go make his own mistakes and then say, wow, I guess it was true. The wise person learns from what the mistakes of the other person were. Okay, and says, I'm not going to repeat that. And so here's what kids that grew up in church think a lot of times that's so dangerous. They think, well, look, I, I grew up in church. I believe in God. I've got the salvation thing, so I'm good. As if God only does us any good when we come close to death or have huge problems. You know, I, I got saved, right? So eternity, I ain't going to worry about that. And I've got God, right? So if everything, everything goes really south, then I know who to turn to. Right? But if you open your Bible and you read it, You'll see over and over again, the message is not that you just need Jesus in death. The message is you need him every single day. He wants to help you with your marriage, with your friendships, with your money, with your children, with your job and everything else. Because you've got no clue how to do anything right outside of Jesus Christ. You need him every day, not just when death comes calling or when your life starts to crumble. So maybe the question, I say this to our church, the question we ask, you know, if you died tonight, where would you go? Maybe more so the question we should be asking of a lot of people is, when you get up tomorrow, Monday morning, do you have any clue at all what you're doing? Because most people don't, even Christians. And look, I don't have three points and a poem this morning. I simply want to walk through these first few verses in Ecclesiastes 7 as he gives us kind of a microcosm of everything that he's going to say for the last 12 chapters. Ending up in Ecclesiastes 12 where he talks about remember your creator now in the days of your youth. He says, don't, don't do what I did. Don't waste your life. Now while you're young, won't you remember your creator? Submit to him. And then at the end of the book, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Why did I write this book? What was the point? Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Your job in life is not to chase after women or cars or relationships or houses or any other things. Your job in life, what you were created for, was to chase after a person, and that is Jesus Christ. You need Him more than you need breath. And so as we walk through these verses where Solomon transitions away from saying, I wasted my life and life stinks, as he moves on and he says, don't put off God until the end. You're just going to end up with a wasted life like me and be filled with emptiness, with tr frustration, with regret because you lied to yourself each day and you said, no, this is what I want. This makes me happy. And Solomon has said earlier, it's like chasing after the wind. You're going to, you're going to think you lunged for it. I got it, but you didn't. You got empty hands. So you think, well, well some more will satisfy me or another woman or another. How, how do you end up with a thousand women? Right? How does that happen? You don't, I'm, and how did he marry him? Anyway, was it like one at a time? I mean, did he walk from one chapel to the next, marrying him? Or was it like wholesale? Do you take you, 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 you? Okay, all of them, all 40 of them. Do you take them? Sure. 
you know, why not? I got 600. Um, you know, at what point is it enough? He's chasing after things. A little more money, another relationship, another, eventually another God because his wives turn his heart away to strange gods, wickedness and fornication, to where Israel was committing human sacrifice. In Solomon's, I mean, just pagan. Solomon went from the pinnacle down to the rubbish heap. And Solomon says, don't do what I did. Don't chase after that. Don't look at Solomon and say, well, that's easy for you to say. Let me try it. You don't have to try it to know that it's in vain. And so Solomon has some thoughts for us not to end up a bitter old man like he does. Look in verse number one. First off, and I don't have points here. I'm just going to walk through it. Okay. Verse number one. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, everything Solomon says here is a huge contrast to his life. Okay? Solomon, for points of his life, was obsessed with his own name, with his own fame. Okay? He's going to talk about the day of death rather than the day of birth uh, and, and how f- uh, uh, mourning and fasting is better than feasting and celebration. Solomon was all about the feast and the celebration. Okay? Solomon, later on, he's going to talk about not listening to yes men that just tell us what we want to hear. We ought to listen to those that tell us what we need to hear and Solomon was surrounded by yes men that just gave him anything that he wanted so everything is a contrast from what Solomon has revealed to us in the first six chapters look and he starts off saying better than making yourself look more attractive okay a good name is better than precious ointment better than making yourself look more attractive we can pull it into modern day usage better than getting a tan better than getting fit or a tummy tuck, or a facelift, or putting on attractive cologne so that you smell good and you turn heads when you walk inside a room and everybody goes, yeah, who's that? And then they look at you and say, oh, him. Right? (laughs) Better than that, and them rolling their eyes because they can't stand you, okay, is a good name. All right? Think about it. What do you want your name to be synonymous with? Do you want people to say, well, he looked good, he smelled good, he had it all, but he's a mess, and I really can't stand that guy. Some of us honestly would be like, I'd be okay with that. If I had everything, I don't need anybody. Um, You can live that life, it's vain. Um, Do you want people instead to say, that guy lived life well? He has something I don't, and ultimately we know it should be Jesus Christ that we have, that the world doesn't have. If you want that kind of reputation, evaluate your direction then while you have time. If you'd like to have a funeral, okay, where people crowd into the room and they say, now that was a life well lived, rather than just coming by saying, I'm so sorry, and checking your pulse to make sure you're really gone, okay, (laughs) then you've got to take stock of how you're living now. Because the day of your death is supposed to be, he goes on and says, better than your day of birth. Now, how could that possibly be? That the day of your death is better than birth. Solomon is not saying, well, death is awesome. What he's saying is for those that submit to God, that that hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, keep His commandments, that's the whole duty of man. For those that do that and live well, death is to be celebrated. At, At birth, there's joy. But who knows how a newborn's life will turn out? Nobody looks at a newborn and says, wow, he's got his mother's eyes and his daddy's failure. (laughs) Nobody does that. There's excitement. There's potential in birth. And even as a child grows up, it's exciting to see them grow up and have dreams and desires. Um, A little while ago, my daughter Mackenzie, our four-year-old, I mean, she's just, she's the sweetest thing, but she's an animal, okay? She walked up, she told me, she said, Daddy, I want to grow up, I want to be a dancer. Now, we're Baptist. I don't think that's in the career choice catalog, all right? My other daughter, Kennedy, who's seven, walked up to me and she said, I want to be a preacher. 
I don't think that's in there either, okay? Um, but it is exciting to watch them grow, to watch them dream. But, but look, every day, every single day, I'm praying continually saying, Lord, help them love you and help them turn out right. You know, if I can just toss this in there, we have a faulty view when we pray for our kids as if like, God, please don't let my child die and please keep them safe and please don't let anything bad happen to them. And we pray as if we somehow love our kids more than God does. You know, you cannot possibly love your child more than God does. Okay? You don't need to bargain with God. Please give them what's best. God will give them what's best. Okay? But it's going to be up to them to submit to His direction. Youth is full of potential and excitement, but death is not about potential. For a Christian, for those that trust Christ as their Savior, death is about fulfillment. It shouldn't be scary. Now look, if I die tomorrow, I hope my wife would do more than just say, I sent in that life insurance payment, right? You know, I, I want her to shed a tear. I hope my loved ones would be a little sad, but I honestly hope that it'd be a little bit of a celebration for me, okay? Because if I'm dead and gone here in five minutes, I will not be crying, okay? In fact, if you gave me the trade and said, do you want to come back? I guarantee you once I see his face, I will not want to have anything to do with this place, Okay? Because for a Christian, death is not the end. I don't want to die today, but if I do, I'm saved. I'll live forever with Christ. And although I'd love to live to a ripe old age, I'd love to have grandkids, I'd like to get to the age where I can gripe about loud music and chuck rocks at kids that walk on my lawn. But if I were to die today, look, I lived a life for 30 plus years that I have not deserved for a second. I've been able to marry a beautiful woman. I have three gorgeous kids. I grew up in the greatest, most advanced most free country in the planet. I've even seen Louisville, my hometown, win a BCS Bowl in the same year that Ohio State lost a BCS Bowl. So for me, hey, hey. Um, so for me, to ever shake my fist at God and talk about what's fair and what I deserve and all the things that I didn't get to do before I died, it would be laughable. For me to somehow think that God owes me something is idolatrous, is foolish, and is very, very nearsighted. God doesn't owe me the breath that I just took. The breath that you just took that you weren't even thinking about, right? Until we just now said something about it. But if you're sitting here saying, well, look, you wouldn't say God's been good to me if you knew my story. Well, look how Solomon continues, okay? He doesn't say it's going to be all sunshine, rainbows, and puppies, okay? Because um, maybe you're allergic to puppies. Verse number two, okay? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. And the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, look, you can say life is good and good name, better than precious ointment and death, better than birth. But like if you knew my story, my life is so horrible right now. Solomon says, honestly, that's not such a bad thing all the time. In fact, it's a very good thing. And a wise man will embrace all of the mourning, all of the sorrow, all of the suffering. Why? Well, far more profitable in the long run then the house of feasting is the house of mourning and sorrow, is what he says. 
Now, I know this sounds crazy, but far better than a night on the town or a shopping trip or a vacation or a fun dinner with friends is a trip to the funeral home or weeping in the doctor's office as he gives us bad news or picking up the phone and having some tragic conversation. Now, I don't mean those things are more fun. I mean they're more profitable. Because a wise man walks into a funeral and he mourns, he considers his own life, he examines his heart and his relationship with God and others. The moment you get bad news from the doctor, you're having thoughts that you're not going to have at Red Lobster for Shrimp Fest. Okay? Nobody's sitting there with a bucket of shrimp scampi in their mouth going, I wonder what's the meaning of life. That's not happening. Okay? Most don't laugh at a funny movie and say, I'm so far from God. Is this how I want to be remembered? It's in tragedy where we think those thoughts. Okay? We act like God did something mean here, allowed something bad, and so He's not nice to me. God kicking down your sandcastle that you built of your own making, of your relationships, your positions, your possessions, sometimes is the most loving thing that God can do to you. Sometimes it's the only way He can get, us our, get our attention. Sometimes I wonder why God lets me sit in difficulty. But it, it almost feels like God says, this is the only time where you consider me. Everything's going well, and what do you do? God is the furthest thing from our mind. It, it's ironic, and it shows us how immature that we are. Because when everything's going well, we're like, I did it. I nailed it. I'm awesome. Look at all the stuff I have. And as soon as everything gets washed away, we look at God and say, how dare you? As if the good, that's me. The bad, that had to be you, because I could never have messed this up. Him doing that is sometimes the most loving thing he can do because mourning makes us lay some things to our heart, Solomon says. Sadness actually makes our heart better for several reasons. Look, sometimes there are some things revealed to me in difficulty that I was not considering otherwise. I can pretend to be shiny and nice and holy and well put together in front of everyone, but toss me in some difficulty, you'll see who I really am. Okay? I can preach to you and tell you, if you have cancer, just serve God. But the moment somebody gives me a phone call and says, the test came back and you have cancer, you'll know what I really believe. If lust or anger is a problem for me, then when I get tested or I get depressed, that's going to rise to the surface, right? It, it's, it's our flaws, our hidden idols that always come to the surface when difficulty comes. Because we come running and looking for something for pleasure and for fulfillment and for temporary satisfaction away from all these external things that are bothering me, if you're a drunk and tragedy strikes, what do you do? You run for a bottle. It's idolatry. It's self-worship. And so sorrow and sadness and frustration many times reveal to us what our God truly is because we run to the things we care about the most many times in difficulty. Sometimes that frustration that we don't want, we curse God for, might actually be a good thing for us because we can confront some things in us that we've ignored for tar far too long. So strife can be a good teacher. Uh, a while ago, the PC in my secretary's office couldn't get on the internet. We need it for some programs we run. I worked on it. I worked on it. We've had so many problems with this computer. All right? I don't like Windows computers. I use Macs. This, amen, thank you. That's the most doctrinal thing we've said today. And uh, I don't like Windows computer. <laughs> that was the first time you said amen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't like Windows computer. This was Windows Vista, which is Satan's curse on the world. Okay? So I was ready to scream. I did everything. I wiped the router. I reinstalled everything. I went into the command terminal, which is like, you know, when I was a kid, we had a computer and all we had was DOS, you know, just, you know, the command line. 
prompt. You don't even know where the command line is now, you know, in Windows. And I know this sounds like Greek to some of you. I'm not super smart. I know my way around computers, but I had to Google a lot of things. I was typing in commands to try to refresh and configure the IP address because it wouldn't give me, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the, the right thing. It has an IP address, but it won't let me connect to the Internet. I didn't know. So I know this sounds like Greek, but I finally flushed the DNS settings. I reset the windsock, and it worked. I had never done any of those things before, okay? But I learned how to do that through an incredibly frustrating experience. So now, if you come up to me and you say, hey, I got a computer that has an IP address, but I can't connect to the Internet for no reason at all, I know to say, have you flushed the DNS settings and reset the windsock? And you're going to look at me and like, I think he just told me to flush my socks, but it sounded right. <laughs> I don't really know what that was, but... I would never have gained that wisdom without the frustration. And that's what Solomon's saying. Frustration is a phenomenal teacher for us. When everything's going right, do we want to learn? Nope. When everything's going wrong, we run usually to the wrong place, to the self-help aisle, and ignore the one book that can tell us the answers that we need. So, so rather than us in difficulty pitching a fit or ignoring it, pretending that it doesn't exist, running to something for pleasure or for satisfaction or for relief, Solomon says embrace those hours of difficulty. A fool runs to the bar just hoping to get drunk enough to forget about his problems, but the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. He's sitting there thinking, how can I grow closer to Christ in this? Reveal in me, God, what needs to change or what I need to learn. Is there sin? Is there idolatry that needs to be removed from my life? Ask me the hard questions, Lord, and I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest enough with myself to quit excusing my faulty behavior. And sometimes there's no sin we need to confess. It's just a clearer view of God that we need to get and a greater faith that we need to have and a greater trust and a greater foundational deep joy in Him and not in the things around us that we need. Because nine times out of ten, our issue is that we're looking for satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment and purpose in things other than Jesus Christ. And rather than being authentic about that and embracing the pain so that God can cure the disease, we usually try to put a Band-Aid on the pain and numb it with something that will only make it worse in the end. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't really like that. Well, Solomon's got something else for you. Verse number 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now, now catch this. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. He continues the theme and, and says, not only is death better than life and mourning better than feasting, but confrontation and rebuke is better than comfort and reassurance. True friends tell us what we need to hear, even when it hurts. Better than a song of fools, a chorus of friends that are idiots, they just tell us what we want to hear. That's what Solomon had for years. And they just say, oh, forget about it. It's no big deal. Don't worry about death or sin or sorrow or ask yourself the hard questions. Far better than that is a wise man that walks up to you that sticks his finger in your face and says you're headed in the wrong direction. A true friend. Solomon needed a man like Nathan that came to his father David, pointed his finger straight in his face and said, this sin is unacceptable and you are going to be called into judgment for it. David was guilty of adultery and murder. Nathan walked in, a true friend, knowing that he can kill me in an instant if he wants, but I'm still going to tell him thou art the man. You're in wicked sin and you know it. 
And when you're going through difficulty or frustration of your own making, the best kinds of friends, sometimes it's not of your own making. Sometimes you just need some encouragement. Okay, I'm not really dealing with that this morning. A true friend will give you that as well and not stomp on your grave and say, good, I hope he dies. But a true friend, when you're going through frustration of your own making, won't just pat yourself, pat you on the head and say, don't worry about it. The best ones are the ones that will tell you, you know what, I, I hate to tell you this, but you're the problem. You're handling this wrong. You're in sin. That's the kind of relationship and accountability that the New Testament commands us multiple times to have. In what context? In the church. That's why church is important. People tell me all the time, I don't need church. I can worship God anywhere. You don't have a single verse of Scripture to back up your postulation that you don't need church. In fact, Christ ordained the church. He died for it. He gave His life for it. And He loves it. So I would not say that you don't need the church. But there are so many New Testament passages I could walk you through and say, how in the world does this happen if it doesn't happen in the church? What are deacons for if we don't, have, don't need the church? What are elders for if we don't need the church? How in the world are we going to have relationships and accountability and edification with each other if we don't have the church? And rather than courting some friends that will just tell us whatever we want to hear, maybe we need some people that will tell us, you know, maybe God is trying to reveal in you something you refuse to acknowledge. Maybe sometimes you've done nothing wrong, but God is simply trying to refine you for His glory and for your good. Nobody likes to hear that. But everybody needs that, right? You get on the phone with somebody, you're mad, you're angry, they start quoting Scripture to you. They start telling you some biblical things. Be honest, if you're like me, you kind of get mad. Well, you're holier than me? Well, you, you're going to act like you don't understand and you've got the answers? And I, We react in the flesh and deny the thing that we need the most. We don't need somebody to say, they're there. We need someone to say, there, there. Get in God's Word. Everybody needs that. But most of us, if we had someone do that to us, we react immaturely and we say, well, you said something I don't like, so you must hate me or you must not understand. Now, a true friend will weep with you when you need it, but if you want somebody to play patty cakes and never confront you, then what you want is not a true friend. What you run is a lackey or a groupie. If you want that, you're just killing yourself. Flip over to Proverbs 27, just a few pages over probably for you. Verse number 5, Solomon wrote this as well. Proverbs 27, verse number 5, he says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The fool's soul loatheth an honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Solomon wrote this, says, Rebuke to your face is better than someone that says they love you, and yet they're afraid to say something. Because true biblical love means rebuke sometimes. Okay? If you're a hungry soul, okay, if you're not filled up with things of your own making, saying, I don't need God, and I don't want any that, and I don't want any spiritual relationship. If you're a hungry soul instead of a full soul, then you're wanting to learn, you're wanting to grow spiritually, then even the bitter things, like rebuke, is going to be sweet to you. If someone rebukes you or confronts you or shares difficult things to hear out of genuine spirit of love then they're a wise friend. And we ought to cling to that person. And then, you know what? We ought to be that person for other people. Not a hypocrite, okay? But the true definition of biblical friendship. But if you ignore all that, you laugh off rebuke, you head to the house of mirth to drown your sorrows and never confront the frustration or sin or difficulties in your life, you know what you're like? Solomon said it in verse number 6. He said, you're like 
the crackling of thorns under a pot. That's what the laughter of fools is like. The people who laugh off, you know, pretend, well, it's no big deal, house of mourning, whatever, let's go to the house of mirth. Oh, he told me I was wrong. Uh, who cares what he said? He says, you're like the crackling of thorns. Now, a lot of people have thought, well, what does he mean, the crackling of thorns? Here seems to be the best answer. You don't use thorns to cook. Does anybody, you know, even back then, if you were at the campfire, you were cooking some beans, do you go out and say, hey, get us all the thorns you possibly could get? You get firewood, right? You get something of substance, right? Thorns, if you were to burn them, thorns are dry. They're small, usually. They'll crack. They'll make a lot of noise. They'll hiss and pop as they burn. They'll crackle real loud, but they'll burn up and be gone in a flash. Solomon seems to be saying, go ahead, ignore what I'm trying to say, ignore what God's trying to teach you, ignore what I've been saying through this whole book. You make a lot of noise, you laugh real loud, you pop, you crackle, you mock, you have a loud song of fools to serenade you and take your mind off the truth. And all the while, as you're cackling, saying, I don't need that, you're ignoring the real pressing issue that you're being burned alive and consumed by things of your own making. You just keep giggling, though. You keep ignoring. You keep mocking to mask your pain. You fiddle while your world burns to the ground and see how it ends up with you going up in smoke. And if that's you, that's just pride. Saying, well, I don't care. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Maybe that's who you are this morning. Maybe you're really good at acting tough. Maybe you're good at laughing it off. Maybe you're good at making a loud crackling sound while you spiritually burn to ashes. But rather than having your marriage or your relationship with your kids or your relationship with God or something else burn while you giggle and ignore it and deflect blame, you do yourself a great service. If you just look down, realize the reality of your situation and go to somebody that can help and say, fire, I'm on fire, I need help. How many marriages crumble as the couple ignores the smoke and pretends that the coldness and the dissatisfaction and the hatred that they have to each other is just normal because we've been married a while and it's just kind of the way it goes. We never ask for help. We never scream out to God and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. Help me. Our pride makes us say, I'll be just fine on my own. How many struggle with an addiction to smut online and yet never scream fire? Never ask for help. How many here haven't picked up their Bible in weeks and feel so distant from God, yet they never think to say, things aren't right in my life? I've smelled smoke for a while, but I've made a lot of noise. I've pretended in order to cover up what I know to be real. Solomon says only a fool laughs that off. So many people live that way because making them live in a way that makes them feel empty, they never cry out for help. Why? Because they're proud. They think they're something that they're not. They think, I can handle this. I don't need God. And so many people would die and even go to hell without Christ because they would never allow themselves to ever one time have a genuine, authentic conversation about heaven and hell. How many people do I talk to and they say, I don't want to talk about that. You go on their front porch, they're like, I'm not talking about Jesus on my front porch. Where do where you want to talk with them? Talk about him. You, you want to meet at Long John Silver's? I don't understand. Where, where do you want to meet? They'll say, well, I, I'm going to have that conversation at church if they never go to church or they go to somewhere that'll just tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. They'd let, rather laugh off the nervousness and pretend that it's not real. You, you ever have a group of teens do that to you? 
they're in trouble, they did something foolish, and they're standing there, you got four guys all lined up, and you're dressing them down and saying, don't do that, and they're looking at each other like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. The laughter of fools, ignoring the reality that they're on fire. Sometimes I'll go to a funeral or I'll do a funeral. I'll see someone that'll come in at the last possible second. Then they'll stare down with their head down to the floor almost the whole time because they're so uncomfortable. They'll almost shake because they want to get out of there so bad. And they'll tell me later, they'll say, I just don't, I don't, I don't like death, I've got to get out of here. Guess what? Nobody loves death. But many times... For those people, it's not that a dead body creeps them out. It's taking a hard look at their own mortality and having an authentic conversation about sin and the reality of judgment at the end of this life that freaks them out more than any dead body. Or facing the fact that even if they're saved, many times they're spinning their wheels, wasting their life, selfishly spending their days in sin and half-hearted living or bitterness... And rather than embracing the opportunity to have a real epiphany about life and what God wants, they'd rather just go to the house of laughter and forget all about it. Solomon says, Let, don't do that. Let's wait here a minute. Let's wait till we're real uncomfortable in the house of mourning. Let's have it soak in. Because God has given us in this moment a priceless gift. You're going to have a conversation with yourself that you would never have while you're sitting with your friends at a restaurant, laughing over exaggerated stories and telling jokes. So embrace those moments when God reveals some things to you, when someone tells you something out of rebuke, and you smell smoke, rather than laughing while you're on fire, realize that something's not quite right, and then scream for help. If you're here today, and God's spoken to you, and He's revealed to you the fact, the reality that you are not saved. If He said to you, you've ignored me, you've gotten your way long enough, smell the smoke, you'll be tempted to do a lot of different things. First off, you'll be tempted to make a mistake that a lot of people do. And they say, well, I'm scared of hell, so that means I'm saved, right? No, no, no. The gospel, as Paul defined it in 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay? I talk to so many people that well, I'm scared of hell, but I don't really know about Christ resurrecting and I don't know about Him dying. Okay, Romans 10, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, okay, you've got to believe that He is real, that He exists in the first place, okay? Okay, uh, faith, right? He that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek. You've got to acknowledge the fact that God is here by virtue of His status. He is greater than me and Jesus Christ said that He was God in the flesh. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and I believe in my heart the resurrection that God hath raised Him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. Look, salvation is not getting scared of hell at a vacation Bible school. Salvation is not raising your hand at a one is because you saw everybody else do it. Salvation is not, well, Dad told me I did something when I was two. Salvation's not even, well, I come to church so I must be saved. A lot of people will be tempted to say, well, it's, it's like a me versus you thing. It's just you. You're really antagonizing me right now. You, just, you always make me feel guilty. Or it's that church or it's those people. And we make excuses. We laugh it off. We ignore the real issue. Salvation is not you versus anybody. It's actually Jesus Christ for you saying, won't you come to me? Won't you lay down your pride? Won't you take my love and my mercy and my forgiveness? Your sin will send you to hell, and I do not want that. 
So much so that I died to take your place. So it's not God versus you. So don't have that in your mind. I guess you can. But won't you make the, not make the mistake of walking out of here on fire, yet pretending that you're okay and you don't need the forgiveness that can only be found through Jesus Christ? Maybe you're saved. Maybe something else is burning you. If you're angry at a brother, you're upset about some perceived wrong or there's some sin that's eating you alive, whether it's great or small, won't you first come and lay it at God's feet this morning and ask for forgiveness and receive His mercy and His help? That's not the end. It's not like, well, I have a problem, but I came down and prayed, so I'm good. No, no, no. That's just the first step on the path where we submit to Christ and say, I am not going to hide this anymore. I'm going to lay it at your feet. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Then I'm going to ask for your help tonight and tomorrow morning and on Tuesday and on Wednesday because I cannot do this in my own flesh. I've tried it far too long and it has not worked for me. You've already done that 15 times, yet you're still a slave to whatever it is that's plaguing you. You can't seem to put the fire out. Look, why don't you come? Why don't you get some real counsel Grab a mature brother or sister in Christ. Ask them for prayer and help. I'm not saying you have to detail all your problems to everybody. I'm just saying go to somebody that you can trust. Come up, talk to a counselor during the prayer time. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you've got a problem with lying or lust or pride or bitterness or a physical addiction like popping pills or alcohol or you can't quit visiting pornography sites. Won't you not pour another gallon of gas on yourself and sit there in all the pain and the shame and the guilt and burn alive? Won't you please not laugh it off? Won't you please not listen to the chorus of fools that will tell you what you want to hear? Why won't you consider the end, sit in the house of mourning and say, I need help, and admit that we are not near as shiny and plastic and pretty as we'd like to pretend? If God has spoken to you, I beg you to please be honest with yourself, to ask the hard questions just like Solomon did. I'm asking you to scream, fire, and say, no more excuses. No more angerness, no more bitter, no more redirected blame in everybody else. No more shaking my fist at God as if his sin is my, fo- his, if my sin is his fault. No more saying, well, I'm not as bad as him, so I can't be that bad. Won't you just say, I'm not repeating Solomon's mistakes. Won't you think, I, I want to think about how my name's going to be remembered. Maybe God wants me not to worry so much about getting out of here and going to Applebee's, the house of feasting. And He wants me to sit in the uncomfortableness of this moment and hear the rebuke of the wise so that I can take a step towards putting out the fire. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?